0: Think about the creation of Adam. How did God do it? Adam has two component parts. What are they? You have the dust, or to be more graphic, mud. And you have the breath or the ruach of God, right? The spirit of God, the breath of God, the wind of God. And in Hebrew, they're all the same. Rach, spirit, breath, wind, all the same. These are the two component parts that make Adam, Adam. That's what makes Adam who he is. This is significant because this speaks to the question of anthropology. Anthropology, of course, comes straight out of Greek. Anthropos means man. Anthropology is the study of man. And so a Christian anthropology says that man is, by definition, two component things. Dust, mud, spirit, or breath. In other words, a human being is, by definition, body and soul. That's what makes a human a human. This is also a very important teaching with implications far more serious than you realize at this point. Because if a human being is body and soul, that means that my body is just as much part of me as my soul is. And that my identity, the meanness that makes me me, is not simply residing in the immaterial part of me called the soul. The meanness of me is me as human, and human is by definition body and soul together. And so. When a human has been disembodied at death, it is not a good thing. It is not natural. It is not wonderful. It's a bad thing. It is the undoing of what God had intended to accomplish. A human being, body and soul. Angels are souls, period. They don't have bodies. Humans are bodies and souls. So when you die, you do not become an angel. You are not freed from your body. And now at last, the real you. You are, in fact, in a deficit situation because you're less than you were created to be, which is why we as Christians look forward to something called the resurrection of the dead. And we'll talk about this in eschatology part later on. You see, Christians are not content to believe in life after death. Any Greek will believe that. Almost any religion believes in life after death. We're not, no, we don't believe in life after death. We believe in the resurrection of the dead. We believe that this body going to live for eternity. This body will be resurrected. And the soul and the body that God created to be me will be me for eternity. That's Christian, guys. And that all stems out of the doctrine of creation. Pretty important. Good uh, this may be our topic. Eh? If it is, I'll tell you. That's fine. Because <laughs> <laughs> that's kind of <coughs> new, sort of. Presenting it, I guess, from that perspective. Yeah. Um, so, would you, I, with our physical death, mm-hmm. our our soul, from my understanding, would be with God and Jesus. Mm-hmm. Is that really a better position? I understand that the way you're saying it, that you know we're not all that we were created to be. So the coming mm-hmm. is becoming just as important. But are we in a better position, or does it really not matter that our souls in heaven? Even though we are disconnected, well, we have to realize is that there is this period, this kind of what we call an interim period, from the time that we die until the until the last right. day, until the resurrection, and so that interim period is a time of waiting and anticipation and of less than the whole story. So, I would say, yeah, it's it's a it's a, you're at peace and you're with God and that's good and you're at rest, but it's not, but it's Perfect. not the whole deal yet, no, sure. right? It's it's sort of like Going to a fancy dinner party, and you arrive, and you're hanging out in the um, atrium, and you're eating hors d'oeuvres, and you're smelling what's cooking behind the doors, and you know it's coming, but you're not there yet. And so that's kind of what I think of the, what, you know, this kind of in-between state. The real party doesn't start until Christ comes. Then, then things go full blast. But until then, we're still waiting. And Scripture but yeah, bears going this to out. Be eating hors d'oeuvres than being outside the door. Yeah, true enough. <laughs> I suppose. Yeah. Yeah, the purgatory thing is kind of a different twist because purgatory is trying to, is trying to um, fill a hole for, um, the, in the Catholic system. Because in the Catholic system, you, see, because purgatory is not just the waiting period. Because right? the waiting period is, is a Christian doctrine. Purgatory is not. The purgatory is the teaching that if a person is on the right course and is heading towards salvation, you know, going to church and doing the things they're supposed to and doing confession, but he has not yet arrived at perfection, completion, the fullness. You know, it seems a crying shame to send the poor guy to hell. And so what we'll do is we'll let him go to purgatory and finish cleaning up. Because purgatory literally means cleansing, purifying. So in purgatory, you go to purgatory and you finish paying for the sins you didn't pay for in this life. That's what purgatory is. And after you finish paying for them, then you get to step on into heaven and wait like everybody else. Purgatory is the waiting, the um, cleaning up time. How much do they still teach you that? Oh, it's still around. How is still. yeah. yeah, oh yeah, yeah definitely. It is, it is still, yeah, still clearly a doctrine of the Church. They maybe don't talk about it a lot, but it is yeah, absolutely fun. a doctrine of the Church. Absolutely. Catholics never, ever take away any doctrine. They might nuance it, but they never take a doctrine away. Otherwise, they would have to admit that it was wrong and they can't do that. <laughs> we would never do that. Before. No, no. We would have to. <laughs> we would have to. <laughs> would have to. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So now, are you getting a glimmer of why this thing, why this matters? All right? So Kolb talks about uh, human beings are two-dimensional then. We have this horizontal aspect of being in the body, but also this vertical aspect of being spiritual. But I would emphasize that the identity, what makes you you, is bound up in both of them. So this, this also goes to, you know, You know, contemporary practices. You go to the funeral, and what does the mom tell the kid? Oh, don't feel so sad. That's not Grandpa. That's just Grandpa's shell. (laughs) That's not true. That's a lie. It's not true. That's Grandpa. He's dead. It's a bad thing. We're sad. Grandpa's soul is with Jesus now. He's at peace. He's okay. But we're going to wait for the day when this body will be alive again. Because Grandpa's soul is going to put back in it where it belongs. That's our hope. That's what we're waiting for. And you begin to see how this thing, like I said, has implications far beyond what you guys realize. The idea that we somehow escape from the body and are set free now to, you know, float around the dry ice fog of heaven with our harp in hand—you know, this is Greek thinking, guys. It's Socrates. It's the spiritual being better than the material. It's flat out wrong, just dead wrong. Yeah. Okay. You just said that that was Grandpa and everything. The, the child's automatic response is going to be, so Grandpa gets to spend all eternity as an old, fat, wrinkled, bald, blotchy ah, looking guy. Grandpa's going to be Grandpa for eternity. What he's going to look like, God's, God will take care of that. I don't, I'm not too worried about that. He'll be a glorified body. Does that mean he gets to be 20 forever? I, don't, I cannot think that either. But does that mean that the kid who dies at six months is going to be a six-month-old infant forever? I don't believe that either. But um, there's something to the uh, who we are being lived out in the identity of our persons and our bodies. And there's a continuity there. So I don't, I'm just purely speculating, but I would like to think that there's some continuity there. And there's the recognition of what we, who we are also continues on into the resurrection body as well. There's a, And and the evidence I have for that is Christ himself. Because when Christ appears to his disciples after the resurrection, after the glorification, what does he tell Thomas? Stick your fingers in the holes in my hand. You know, what's Jesus doing with holes in his hand? Well, why's he got a hole on his side? Isn't he resurrected? Isn't he glorified? What's the deal here? But well, you see... The holes in his hands and the holes in his side are the very reason for his glorification and for the glory that he has. And they're part of who he is. In the book of Revelation, when the lamb is on the throne, it is the lamb having been slain. You see, the scars are part of who he is, part of his identity. And I think there's something to that with us as well. What we live, what we endure, what we experience becomes part of what we are. Does that mean the quadriplegic is that for eternity? no but there'll be something about him that will continue on that will mark him and will know him for, what, for the wounds that he carried. I believe. Okay? All right. So, creation next in the helo. God does it out of nothing. We have our anthropology growing out of this. We are body and soul. And this leads to a kind of an old debate among Christians and among scholars whether we are dichotomists or trichotomists. Oops, dichotomists or trichotomists? A dichotomist says a human being is body and soul, and that's all she wrote. A trichotomist says a human being is body, soul, and spirit. Which one is scriptural? Actually, both of them are. That's the problem, all right? They're both scriptural. We've got stuff in the Bible that talks about body and soul. And then we've got things where St. Paul talks about, may your body, soul, and spirit be kept sound and blameless until the coming of Christ. And so we have both things being used. Some people make a lot out of this and try to say, all right, body, we know that's the material element. Soul, that refers to your mental personality sort of things. And then spirit, that refers to your relationship with God. Or to the your, the higher thing that makes you a human being? Eh, maybe. I tend to think this way. I tend to think that dichotomy is the way to go. I tend to, I tend to be a dichotomist in my dealing with this stuff, body and soul. And I think that the soul-spirit... It's really just kind of subdividing soul out a little bit more. But really, soul just refers to the inanimate aspects of us, our personality, our thinking, our emotional kinds of things, which do get bound up with physical things, obviously, because there is that somatic psychosomatic connection in these kinds of things. But this inanimate stuff that makes us us, that's the soul. And the spirit, I would argue, is a part of that as well. There's a piece of that. Okay? So, in other words, the quick answer is, do we believe in dichotomy or trichotomy? Take your pick. Go either way. It doesn't really matter. If you want to be a trichotomist? Fine. Go for it. You know, you can you can do that. Okay. You consider that orthodoxy then? Sure. Orthodoxy, orthodoxy has room for both. Scripture talks that way and and there's room for um for dealing with both of them in this in this in this situation in this realm. All right. <clears throat> so, the main thing is that we have body and soul together and that we are um functioning as God wants us to function. Now, Why was Adam created? What is his purpose? What is his job? God creates Adam and plops him where? In the garden. garden. And what's he tell him? Take Take care of it. Have dominion. Have dominion. And this, I would argue, is what's going on here when we talk about the image of God. So the image of God is Adam having dominion over this creation and caring for it just the way he's supposed to. That's that's the image of God. That's the dominion. So Adam takes care of the garden, looks after it, has dominion, images God to the rest of creation and cares for these things just the way he's supposed to and carrying out his responsibility. That's That's Adam's job, having dominion. That's also why then, when Adam falls and when Adam rejects God's plan, all of creation falls with him because he is the, the pinnacle of creation, and he has dominion over the creation. So when Adam falls, everything is built, bent out of whack, and all the creation then languishes with him. And there's this wonderful verse in Romans that says, all of creation groans in anticipation of the sons of God being revealed. And what that tells us is that the whole creation is, in a sense, languishing and suffering and waiting also for this restoration that's going to be accomplished. That's another important point is... The creation is good, and it's going to be fixed. So we're not just waiting for everything to get wiped out and God to make a new heaven and start over from scratch and we all get to go to the you know the dry ice world and get our harp issued and go and start playing part of the choir forever. The eternal hymn sing, the eternal hymn sing right. Yeah. Instead, what we're looking forward to is this creation being put back where it belongs being fixed, being restored. And that's why the Bible always talks about a new heavens and a new earth. God's restoring, he's fixing, he's putting things back as they belong. One of the writers who has done a really good job toying with this and experimenting with this and exploring this is C.S. Lewis. right? And he touches on it a little bit in the Chronicles of Narnia, but where he really does this stuff nicely is in the Space Trilogy. And you guys read that? Out of the Silent Planet, Paralandra, and That Hideous Strength. How many, you, how many of you have read any of those? Only one of you. Oh. All right. Required reading. You have a week and a half in August, and you've got nothing else to do, and you get done with this class before regular classes start. Track down C.S. Lewis, and the first book to read is called Out of the Silent Planet. You guys are all familiar with C.S. Lewis, I'm assuming? Right? Wrote the Chronicles of Narnia. That British guy lived in the 40s and the 50s in England and um, was a, basically an agnostic, became a Christian, and then became a very strong Christian apologist. Out of the Silent Planet, it's a very intriguing book. People say, oh, it's science fiction. Yeah, kind of. It's, it's a story about a guy flying up to Mars and he finds life on Mars and this kind of stuff. And It's, it's pretty um, low-tech when it comes to the science fiction part of it. But what's fascinating about the story is the theological premise at work here. Because what C.S. Lewis does is he assumes that when God created, he created life on other places, but that that life has not fallen from its creator, and it's not out of whack with its creator, but it's still living properly related to the creator. And so the life on Mars is living as they should be. And they look at the Earth as, and they call that the silent planet, because it's shrouded in darkness and shrouded under cloud because it's cut itself off from God, the creator. it's just fascinating as he toys with this. So Out of the Silent Planet is pretty good. Paralandra is even better. It is a phenomenally good book. Because in Paralandra, they go to Venus, and Venus is a situation where you have an Adam and an Eve um, character who have not yet fallen and are being tempted. And it's just fascinating, the theology of it. So I really strongly encourage you to take a look at these and read them. They're just loaded with really very cool stuff. And they're fun to read, too. And then, when you get done with those three, and then that hideous strength, it takes a different genre altogether, but it kind of summarizes all these. And um, very cool stuff on the whole autonomy of man and what makes man a man and the anthropological questions. Really good stuff going on here. And then you get done with the, with the space trilogy. That's what this is called, is the space trilogy. Then dig out and find um, The Great Divorce. Okay? <laughs> is that the one that's allegory or is it the problem with pain? The that, no, the, the great bus. divorce is, is the bus. Okay, that's, that's okay. the great divorce. Yeah, and you're. The, anybody else read the great divorce? Yeah. Okay. The great divorce has nothing to do with marriage. All right. The great divorce is talking about heaven and hell, and he's a visualizing, and he's kind of playing with purgatory stuff here a little bit. He's visualizing saints who are or souls who are condemned to hell who have a chance to go up and visit the um kind of the waiting room or the welcoming room of heaven, and they encounter residents of heaven and all that kind of stuff. It's just. Great stuff. Really good. But what's most fascinating about of all in Great Divorce, and this fits my thesis, and believe it or not, we're back on track here, is this that in the Great Divorce, when the when the souls come off of the bus from hell and step into heaven, it's beautiful. Grass and everything stuff. But when they step on the grass, they have this strange experience. The grass is more powerful than they are. They are Kind of like see through, wispy, translucent. They're not really fully formed. And the grass actually stabs them and hurts them because they can't bend it. You know, it's just like poking straight up and they step on it and they, they scream in pain because it hurts them because they haven't become substantial yet. And so it's just so cool because Lewis turns everything on his head. Because we have these visions of heaven and we think, family circle, you know, with the grandfather up on the cloud, bending over, and you can see through him, you know, he's like a line, kind of transparent, and everything in heaven is sort of ghosty, shadowy, line sort of stuff, and that's kind of our vision of heaven, and then the real stuff is earth, and we need to get past that material. Lewis gets it right, because for Lewis, he realizes that the real is heaven, and it's more real than this life. And so when we get to eternity, we become more substantial, more material, more physical. It is so cool. It is so cool. Because instead of denigrating the material and denigrating the physical and running away from it as being somehow evil or wicked or a place of sinfulness, he says, no, the creation is God's creation. It's good. It's right. It's a beautiful thing. That's what is going on here. Now, why all this matters is because of Gnosticism.